Okay, last week we looked at the miracle of Jesus' healing a Gentile woman's daughter who had been possessed by a demon. In that miracle, Jesus called the woman a dog. One of the highlights of the sermon. What does that mean? Well, those of us who are non-Jewish dissenters, right, well, non-Jewish, of non-Jewish descent, we need to remember that we are wild olive branches that have been grafted into the tree of Israel. Yeah, that's told to us in Romans, specifically chapter 11. Now, in terms of redemptive history, we are like this woman. We are dogs. But because the children of Israel refused the gift that the Father had given to them, or offered to them, the Father, the Father gave that gift to us. Though we had no right to it originally, no claim to it. Those crumbs of salvation, which that Syrophoenician woman was asking for, are graciously given to us. And that crumb is actually that pearl of great price for which none of us would trade anything. Nothing in this world would we give up in order to have that single crumb. Put another way, those who know that value of the pearl, they would give up everything to acquire it. Everything. And so with that introduction, we come to another miracle today, performed by Jesus, which closes out Mark's chapter 11. And I want to read that now with you together. It's Mark 7. Verses uh, 31 through 37, and it will close out Mark chapter 7. All right, the word of the Lord. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went out through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Amen. It's a great passage. As a reminder, something you likely already know, Jesus did his ministry on foot. He served as a rabbi, a teaching rabbi, walking around with those who wanted to learn from him. Those are students called disciples. And he handpicked 12 of them to be essentially his inner circle. And with these 12, he especially and primarily journeyed throughout the Jewish homelands. That would be the, the region around Galilee, so the Sea of Galilee and Judea. But as we saw last week, he took them for a respite outside of that land to a region of Tyre, the vicinity of both Tyre and Sidon. It was the ancient area of Phoenicia, part of Syria. And it seems, though, that Jesus didn't stay there very long. He soon returned to the area around the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, there's a brief description of Jesus' itinerary. I'm not going to give detail about that, but he went back to the region of Galilee. Mark, however, he doesn't focus on that very much. He simply tells us that Jesus departed that vicinity of Tyre and that he went through Sidon, which happens to be, by the way, the opposite direction of where he was destined for, right, Galilee. So for whatever reason, we're not informed about that. And Jesus gets to the Sea of Galilee in a roundabout way by Sidon, which... um, uh, and the area of the Decapolis. That, air, that, that journey is about 120 miles. It's a long walk. We read through Mark, we should keep in mind. Mark does this because he's not writing a biography, right? He's not writing the life of Jesus, per se. He's writing a gospel, and he paces through it very quickly. His specific purpose is to convince the Gentile audience, probably those in Rome, to convince them that Jesus is the Son of God. And as we learned last week, Jesus was sent to the covenant people of Israel, the Jews. Therefore, Mark sees it as much more helpful to report what happened when Jesus and his disciples got back to that region around the Sea of Galilee. He writes in verse 32, Then they brought him, I'm sorry, they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him, that's Jesus, they begged Jesus to put his hand on him. Mark's description of this malady that afflicted this man, it doesn't come across as powerfully in English as it does in the original language. You're going to have to trust me on that unless you know Greek. When Mark tells us that this man had a speech impediment, he uses a Greek word. Mogalelon. Mogalelon. He uses that word specifically, which conveys no small impediment. That's what it means. Mark's choice of the word Mogalelon, it means that this man had a severe difficulty speaking and that people could not discern what he was saying. None of the words that came out were understandable. And by now, well, I'm not really sure how long we've been doing Mark. It's months. But by now, I think in um, 1 through 7, we've looked at maybe 13 miracles performed by Jesus. Some are of a specific individual, but others are referred to as miracles over many or multitudes. And so by now, human nature, you may have gotten used to this power of Jesus and all these miracles that he's been doing and his compassion. You may be asking, so what's the significance of this miracle? How's this one different? Why are we spending a whole sermon on this one if it seems to be the same as the healing of the withered hand or the healing of the man who was blind? Is it really a quote-unquote run-of-the-mill miracle? As if there could be one. No, it's not. So like last week, this miracle is different. Mark First of all, he's alone in the gospel writers. You won't find this particular narrative of this miracle in any of the other three gospels. Matthew doesn't record it, nor does Luke or John. And I want to submit to you why Mark singles it out. For that, we have to focus on this funny Greek word, mogalelon. It's translated, as you now know, he spoke with great difficulty. Now, the only other place in the entire Bible, the only other place in the entire Bible that this word is used is in the Old Testament. 
It's Isaiah 35, verse 6. Now, if you're paying attention, I'm sure most of you are. I don't see anybody nodding off quite yet. You might be saying, come on, Pastor, Isaiah is the Old Testament. That was written in Hebrew. How can Mogalalon be there if it's a Greek word? It doesn't make sense. That's a good question. But let me remind you of Alexander the Great. Right, go back to high school or middle school. Alexander the Great, who in the 300s BC, he led military campaigns that conquered vast territories. Right, it spanned from Greece all the way around the, the eastern side and the southern side, the northern side of the Mediterranean, North Africa, all the way through the Middle East, through Afghanistan and Pakistan, up to the border of India. And by doing all of that, Alexander Hellenized that region. He made it Greek. He imposed on it Greek culture, and it affected languages, it affected communities, and it affected commerce in that big region. So you may be surprised, I'm getting to the point, you may be surprised to learn that Hebrew ceased to be spoken, or it was not the language of the Jews at this time. It had really ceased to be spoken from the time that they were exiled in Babylon. And certainly by the time they were released from Babylon out of that, out of that captivity. And you can see that happening in the Old Testament's Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 24. I'm going to read it to you. It's a brief, brief verse. It makes this point. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Okay, so the, the Jews in captivity in Babylon had forgotten Hebrew. They stopped speaking it. And Aramaic, which is a derivation, a spoken really derivation of Hebrew, the Hebrew language, it became the common language among the Jews. But with the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greek empires, the Jews in their displacement and their spreading throughout the known world at that time after the Babylonian exile, that's called the diaspora. It's another fancy word, right? The Jews got spread around after they came out of captivity. They no longer lived in Jerusalem primarily or the Galilee or Judea. They were everywhere of the known world at that time throughout Alexander's empires. And for some of those Jews, especially those living in Egypt, Greek became the primary language. And thus it became necessary for the scriptures to be translated into Greek. And so, in the third century BC, this is before Christ, 72 Jewish scholars, six from each of the 12 tribes, were corralled together to translate much of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. You may have heard of this book. It's called the Septuagint. S-E-P-T, Sept, Seven, Septuagint. Does that ring a bell? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The term Septuagint, which is Latin, by the way, for 70, it actually refers to the 72 scholars, the translators. They rounded it down from 72 to 70, In your Bibles, in the beginning of your Bibles, I'm sure it'll say LXX. That's the Roman numerals for 70. That's what abbreviates the Septuagint. But all you need to know really is that that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
Now, personally, I hope that's interesting to you. But even if it's not, I'm using it to make my point here from the pulpit on the text this morning in Mark, which is to say that that word mogalelon is only found twice in Scripture. It's found, of course, in our Mark chapter 7 this morning, verse 32, and in the Old Testament's Septuagint, Isaiah 35, verse 6. And that verse reads as follows. I'm actually going to start one verse earlier with verse 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, that's Mogalelon, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Now, why is this important? It's because Jesus is doing in Mark 7 with this deaf and dumb man. It's an indication directly from the Old Testament that Jesus, that Messiah, that was prophesied of, is the, is the Savior of the world. Now hang with me here. I'm going to make it clear, hopefully, in a moment. In the immediately preceding chapters of Isaiah 35, there is great doom, great doom that God's foretelling that will fall on disobedient Israel. The day of the Lord, vengeance. Their land, it says, will be laid to waste. Their streams shall be turned into tar. It says pitch, that's tar. And their land will be, become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched day or night. There will be no leadership, no palaces, just wild animals and thorns that thrive in a desert. This is a very detailed, not just poetic, but it's a narrative detail of Judgment, divine judgment on the Jews who were disobedient. God's going to punish them by taking away their land and destroying it. And this land possessed by Israel was incredibly significant. You'll remember it was the land that was promised to Abraham, right, their forefather. And by now, I'm sorry, but now God's removing it. He's turning that land into a hellish sort of desolation. The good news is that when God gives some sort of pronouncement or announcement of judgment upon his people, he often gives them a word of encouragement, a future hope, because God will keep his promise to save and to restore and regenerate from death to life, right? He will retain a remnant of people saved unto himself for ultimate salvation, Sure enough, we hear this word of encouragement immediately after Isaiah announces that day of the Lord, that day of vengeance on which the Lord visits destruction on his people, on the land of Israel. In the opening of Isaiah 35, the prophet writes this, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Now, there's a contrast there. I hope you see this contrast. Isaiah moves from destruction to glory, from desolation to the excellence of the manifestation of the Lord. Now, in that same chapter, he continues. I'm going to pick up at verse 3 and 4. 
Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. That text reiterates a principle that's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. This is good news to us dogs here at Edgemont this morning. It tells us that the Old Testament, the salvations of the Jews, but that God's working through the stiff-necked people to bring salvation to the entire peoples of the world. And here's the climax. I've already read this part to you, but I'm going to read the full text around it for context. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass, and reeds, and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness." Amen to that. And that, Edgemont, is the climactic passage when Isaiah rejoices that the tongue of the dumb shall sing. It's Mogalelon again. Centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God, he gave this message of hope. Really, it's a vision looking past the destruction and the desolation to the messianic age, to that age when Jesus is going to come again. Come, period, not again when the kingdom of God would break through and the Messiah would arrive on the scene as a babe in Bethlehem. He promised, God promised that the Messiah would give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and that he would loosen the tongues of the mute. Okay, and so in our passage this morning, surely, I was only used twice, once by Mark, surely he's referencing this marvelous promise as he pens the narrative of Jesus' encounter with this deaf man, and who was, of course, also severely unable to speak. Mark shows us in this miracle performed by Jesus that he's powerfully and directly connected to the messianic prophecy of the salvation for all peoples, which is described in Isaiah 35. Now, like last week's Gentile woman, right, this healing is also probably likely of a non-Jew. We can draw that conclusion because Jesus is doing a roundabout way through the Decapolis, and the Decapolis was a region full of Gentiles, those whom the Jewish religious leaders deemed unclean, right? Didn't want to touch them, wash the seats of people that sat, sat down on their couches. This is the love of Jesus in action. Now, first, what's Jesus do? He pulls this man aside. All right, he gets him aside, probably so he doesn't embarrass the man, but he pulls him aside in private. He then puts his fingers in the man's ears. Jesus spits probably into his hand, after which he dabbed it on the man's tongue. The Lord makes clear to the man that he is going to address this man's problems. He can't communicate with him. So he's being demonstrative, right? He's sign language, so to speak. There's no way to speak to this man. So Jesus is is demonstrating. He uses spittle, 
which might sound a little bit odd to us. But that's another thing that was considered unclean to the Jews. However, there was a tradition, just a tradition in the ancient world, that those who were endowed with healing powers would use spit to convey his ability to uh, the people to whom they're ministering. Regardless, don't know if that's a potential connection or not, but I share it with you because it might make sense. But regardless of the potential connection, we then read that Jesus sighed. Maybe inwardly, inwardly, maybe outwardly, probably both. We don't know. But the sigh of the Messiah was a passionate appeal to his heavenly father to intervene. To conquer sin and restore this man's sins, restore this man from sin's desolating effects. And here Jesus is sighing. He's been dealing with sin, both the sin of the Pharisees' hearts and the sin demonstrated through diseases and, and, and all kinds of physical ailments. Then Jesus spoke this Aramaic word, ephaphtha. It's a hard one to pronounce, ephaphtha. But Mark translates it for his Greek-speaking readers as be opened. And at that, at that command of Jesus, what happened? The man's ears were opened. He could hear perfectly. He could mumble a little bit, so he probably wasn't deaf from birth. But it's clearly been many, many years since he could talk. That tongue that had been in chains, making it impossible for him to speak clearly, it was set free. And we're told that he could speak clearly, articulately, right, plainly. And that is what God will do with the remnant of Israel, right, the spiritual children of Abraham, spiritual children of Abraham, those who have faith in God. God will turn desolation into glory. He will turn the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. God will set free his people from sin. In a very real sense, this is what happens to every Christian. If, you've been, if, you, if you are a Christian, if you've experienced the blessing of Christ and forgiveness, then you know what I'm talking about here. Before the Holy Spirit opens up to us the things of God, we're deaf to the things of God. We don't understand his word. That's what this poor man was like. He couldn't hear. He certainly couldn't articulate it. And neither can sinners who are by nature slaves to sin. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the love of Jesus. And they, they certainly can't articulate it. They can't explain it. Until the Holy Spirit cleanses our hearts and regenerates our souls, our tongues, they practice deceit. Like the poison of snakes, we're told, in Romans 3.13. Those aren't my words, those are Paul's. I think it says the, the poison of asps. It's God's words. He sets us free from these afflictions. He does that by the regenerating power of his Holy Spirit. And lastly, in Mark, we come to the final two verses, 36 and 37. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But 
The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I don't know about you. I'd probably have a hard time if I became undeaf and unmute. I'd probably have a hard time not dis- disclosing that to the world. It's just, it's just what people did. They were amazed at Jesus. He commanded them that they should tell no one, but they didn't obey it. Instead, they widely proclaimed Jesus' works. They were, in fact, astonished beyond measure, and the people gave a stirring assessment of Jesus and his work. He says, he's done all things well. We're not surprised at that, are we? We have the, we have the benefit of hindsight, reading all of the, the Bible, maybe for some of you more than, more than once. When Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem and he determined that obedience to the will of his father, perfect obedience, by the way, was the food of Jesus. We read that in John 4, verse 34. He did it well. No failure in Jesus. No A minus even. There was no blemish to his work. And the father, the father said so much when he declared, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. This Jesus is the same God, by the way. Maybe this takes you back to the origins of Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, at creation, the heavens and the earth. When he was finished with his creative work, saw that it was very good. What he did in creation, he did very well. And it's the same God, by the way, who redeems us. Yeah? When you're saved, when you're redeemed, when Christ carries out his work of redemption for our souls, he does it really well. No mistakes, no shortfalls. Same thing with the universe. He does all things well. These Gentiles, they noticed it about Jesus. Look at him, they said to one another. Everything, everything he does, he does well. And the one who creates, the one who redeems, the one who opens deaf ears and loosens tongues, he does all things well. It's not for us to know why, by the way, God turns rivers into tar. Why he leaves the land to wild beasts or subjects people to suffering and death. Why he saves only a chosen remnant of people unto himself. You know, we don't believe in universalism. Not everyone is saved. It is, however, enough for us to know that he does it. And by faith, we have to accept this and submit our minds and our hearts to God. We have to defer to his wisdom. His mind is infinite. We're not, right? We're finite. We're frail. For in, for in eternity past, as well as eternity future, he does all things well. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Let us lay aside all doubts about you, God, all fears and all human conclusions that you are somehow 
unfair. For your mercy is abounding. The only one, God, whom you've treated in an undeserved manner is yourself. For you're glorious, and yet Jesus subjected himself to shame. You're holy, and you're righteous, and yet Jesus took on injustice, God, to the point of being scourged and crucified. All throughout history, your creation of humanity. God, we've called you perverted. Keeping it real, God, that's, that's, that's what the human race has done. We've charged you with all kinds of causes for complaining. And yet, Lord, truthfully, the indictment of sin, it's rightly placed with us at our own hearts. So, God, we thank you for whatever reason, for whatever wisdom you see in making it so. We thank you for turning our hearts to you, for changing us from blind and deaf ones to those who see and to hear. For by that vision wrought upon us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we now see ourselves as we ought. We know that we deserve death. But we're now able to rejoice in the salvation of your Son. Joyous, joyous. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.